Would you please turn with me to the book of Acts as we continue our journey through that powerful story of the early church. Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Malcolm Duncan. I lead the church here in Dundonald. If you're joining online or you're here for the first time or for the umpteenth time, thanks for taking the time to be with us. I'm going to read from verse 6 of the book of Acts, chapter 1, to verse 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. You would like a title for what I am going to talk to you about for 20 minutes or so this morning. It's simply this, that we are called to be an expectant church. This is the fourth part of our journey through the book of Acts under the bigger title of Church on the Move, exploring this early community as they followed the leading and guiding and the interrupting work of the Holy Spirit as he took them to places that they never thought they would go and asked them to do things that they never thought they'd be asked to do, they had to follow him. Well, they didn't have to follow him. They chose to follow him. And as we look at this um, section of scripture this morning, it concerns something that many in our nonconformist circles have overlooked. There are some things that for centuries lay forgotten, which if they had been remembered, would have changed the world remarkably. For example, the steam engine. It was invented, we're told, in 1712 and refined largely by James Watt, who pretty much tried to take the credit for inventing it as well, although he didn't. Because at 1700, 1600 years earlier, a Greek man called Heron of Alexandria designed the first steam engine. And for 1,600 years, it wasn't used. I wonder what would have happened if we'd actually caught wind of it earlier on. Or what about this first story? Um, In the 13th century, about the same time as Marco Polo was off doing what Marco Polo did, establishing the company for mints. (laughs) In the Far East... Buddhists made a 10-foot-tall, 12-foot-wide golden Buddha, solid gold. 
It lay in a temple until the early 17th century when the king of Thailand had it hidden in case it was um, stolen by somebody, solid gold. And in order to hide it, he had it covered in plaster, stucco, just plaster. It was shoved into a tin temple and it lay there until 1950. A solid gold, 10 foot wide, 10 foot high, 12 foot wide, gold, golden statue. Think of how much that was worth. And yet it was hoiked from one place to another and nobody realized what it was. They just thought it was heavy plaster until it was moved and dropped into a puddle where it was left overnight. And when the Buddhist monks came to move it the following morning, some of the plaster had fallen off and they realized that it was gold. One of the most expensive statues that humankind have ever made lost and forgotten for 300 years. Or what about this story? Many of you will know it. James Lind, a Navy captain, discovered a cure to scurvy in 1747. And it was drinking lime or lemon juice. As a result, the British Navy always issued limes as part of their rationing or lemons to their, um, to their officers, to their to, to, um, sailors forgot what you called people that worked in the Navy. <laughs> I should remember that. My nephew works in the Navy. Sailors. And it kept them free. They didn't understand why it worked, but they knew that it kept them free from scurvy. Then there was a shortage of limes. That's where the words limeys comes from, by the way, um, which is something that uh, British people are often called, or English people particularly. And it went out of fashion for 200 years. They stopped using it for 200 years. Thousands of people died of scurvy. Thousands and thousands of sailors, thousands of soldiers died because they forgot that um, lime juice, lemon juice, vitamin C, as it turned out, could uh, save people from scurvy. It wasn't rediscovered until 1932. Imagine having something so important. Or what about concrete? Do you know when concrete was first used? 300 BC. 300 BC. I didn't even know they had cars in those days. They lost the recipe. So it wasn't used again until 1756. That's 2,000 years. Christianity, at least the part of Christianity that is represented by nonconformists, often forgets something called the ascension. It's the moment recorded here in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 to 11 where Jesus Christ is taken to heaven. It's deeply important. We remember all the other festivals. We remember the incarnation at Christmas. We remember the crucifixion at Easter. We remember the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But 40 days after the crucifixion and 10 days before the day of Pentecost is ascension. In the traditional Christian calendar, it's celebrated on Holy Thursday. Some traditions celebrated on the Sunday before Pentecost. Holy Thursday is the Thursday, 10 days before the day of Pentecost, when we remember the moment when Jesus Christ was taken to heaven. That's what we read about this morning in the reading that I brought to you from Acts chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. This is a powerful moment in the church's history, just like the incarnation will never be repeated again. We don't need another incarnation. And just like Easter Day will never be repeated again, we don't need another crucifixion. And despite 
the words in the hymn, we need another Pentecost. We don't. Just like the day of Pentecost will never be repeated again. We don't need another one of those. We've already had one. It's enough to give us energy and passion and power for all eternity. The day of ascension, the day that Jesus was taken up in bodily form to heaven is a really important day for your faith if you're a Christian. It's a day that changes everything about what you believe. Have you ever celebrated Ascension Day? Did you ever go to an Ascension Day service? Did you ever think about what happened in that moment and why it matters to us today? We love Easter. We love Christmas. Some of us love Pentecost. Some of us aren't too sure. But Ascension Day is about a church that learns what it means to be expectant. Learning that the job isn't done yet, that God is still at work, that Jesus hasn't finished with us. There's something powerful about these few verses if we will let them touch us. Here's what happens. The disciples see Jesus being taken to heaven physically. They see his physical form disappearing and they, they stay gazing up, trying to work out what's happened and two angels appear And they say to um, the men that are watching, men of Galilee, why are you staring up into heaven? This same Jesus that has ascended will return in like manner. Jesus in verse eight that Pastor Pip picked up last Sunday had told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he goes out with them to just outside Jerusalem and he's taken away. And they're left confused. They're trying to work out, how can this happen? He's just told us that we're going to receive power and now he's left us. Christian faith can be like that. One minute we see Jesus, the next minute we've no idea where he is. The darkness of grief can cloud our eyes. Questions can block out our convictions. Fear, anxiety, worry, uncertainty. We can come to church on a Sunday morning and feel as if like I felt just a moment or two ago and I don't do feelings very often, by the way. Well, I do feelings, but you know, I'm not a robot. But in church, I'm not governed by feelings. But as we were worshiping God through that extended time around the communion table, I felt God close. As if I could reach out and touch him. I don't feel that now. That was only 15 minutes ago. Sometimes we can end up in a situation where we are caught up with what we feel like these men were. Where have you gone, Jesus? Why have you left us? You promised that you were going to empower us. How can you empower us if you're not here? And they're staring up into heaven and two of God's messengers say, why are you doing that? If he went and he promised that he's going to come back, then he's going to come back. Interestingly, in the passage that we'll pick up next week, immediately they go back and get on with the business of ministry. Immediately they choose a replacement for Judas who has killed himself. Immediately they get into the humdrum day-to-day activity of being God's people on the earth. That's what happens to them. But here in these verses, there is a powerful, powerful story. Something remarkable is going on. I want you to turn back for a second just to get a flavor of it to the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 16, the very last section of it, verse 19. This records the same moment. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven. 
and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that accompanied it. Mark tells us where Jesus went. Luke doesn't. Luke just says that he was taken into heaven. Mark says that he was taken into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. And that the disciples continued with their ministry as a result of having been with Jesus. This early church knew what it meant to be expectant. They knew what it was to get on with the job of serving Christ and extending his kingdom whilst waiting on him returning. If you read Acts chapter 1, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 uh, closely, you'll see a whole series of things. I just want to highlight a few for you that I hope will help you. First of all, as Pastor Pip said last week, in this moment, as he's about to go, the first thing he says to them is, wait until I give you power. Expectancy is about waiting on the Spirit's power. Because without him, we can do nothing. And I will be your, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In your local area, your region, your nation, and in, your, in the world. That's the kind of church God is calling us to be. A church for the local area. Your local area, not just in Donald. Where do you live? Some people live in um, really far away. I'm trying to remember. It's Anna Cloney or Donna Cloney or Donna, Donna Anna something or other. Some folk travel from the other side of Belfast. Some people travel from Ballyclare. Good County Antrim folk, God bless you. Some folk travel from Craiga. Some folk travel from Orm, the Ormo Road. Some folk travel from Bangor, God help you. Some come from Newton Ards. Some come from Cumber. Some come from um, the Ards Peninsula. Anybody further away than that? You can shout, I don't bite. Nobody from further away. Yeah, Newcastle County Down or Newcastle upon Tyne? <laughs> County Down, well done for getting here this morning. Anyone further than Newcastle? Nobody further than Newcastle? What does it look like for you to be a witness there? I led a church many years ago called Springborn Christian Centre, and we had a real passion for our own community. Thank goodness that we did. But we also had a passion for the communities that everybody that was in our church were a part of the communities that they worked in, the communities where they lived, the communities where they commuted to, the communities where they traveled. Imagine what God could do with us if in our own communities, wherever that community is, wherever you are, God gave you a sense of power, a sense of his presence, and he equipped you in Dundee. He equipped you in Stirling. He equipped you in Edinburgh. He equipped you at university. He equipped you wherever you were to be a witness for him. That's what we want to be, a church that enables you to shine for Christ where you live, where you work, where you um, do recreation, wherever you might be. A church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Expectancy also means that we are a church that is centered on Jesus' return. Do you see what um, Jesus says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 9? When he had said this, as they were watching, he told them, um, when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were looking into heaven, gazing up, suddenly two men in white robes said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven 
will come in the same way as you have seen him go. They were centered on Jesus. Not only were they expectant of the Holy Spirit, they were transfixed. They were fixed on Jesus. So much so that when he went, they kept looking for him. Here's a group of people that were hanging on every word. Here's a group of people that knew that as long as Jesus was with them, they'd be all right. So when he went, no wonder they stopped and they stood and they gazed and they gazed and they gazed. And the way it's written in Greek gives you the impression that they're just bewildered. One minute he's here, the next minute he's gone. Where is he? Was it a cloudless day? Was it a cloudy day? What happened in this moment? We don't know. All we know is that they were so centered on Jesus that when he disappeared from their sight, they were desperately looking for him. How desperate are you for Jesus? I'm not talking for a moment to those of you that are not yet Christians. I'm talking to those of you that are Christians. How desperate are you for him? Can you imagine life without him? Can you even begin to think about what it looked like not to have him with you? These disciples were in new territory. They knew because Jesus had told them that they needed the Holy Spirit. But they hadn't quite worked out, I don't think, that to have the Spirit was to have him. So they needed him. They were centered on him. So much so that after a while, we don't know how long, these two angels, these two messengers, the Greek word for angel is angelos, and it just means messenger. We assume by the text here that they were angelic beings, but they may have just been two men. We don't know. It's the same word in Greek. But these two people, I think these two angels, said to them, these men, why are you standing here still? Why are you still here? But you understand why they were still there, don't you? I understand why they were still there. They needed Jesus. And we still do. We still need his grace. We still need his power. How are you going to get through what you're facing now if Jesus doesn't help you? How will the families that have gone through grief and loss and sadness in our church, too many of them in the last months, get through a day if Jesus doesn't help them? That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. I need Jesus. I need his grace, I need his power, I need his help, I need his strength, I need him to carry me, I need him to instruct me. I'm not afraid to say to you that without him, I can do nothing. This early church got that, they understood it. They were not only waiting expectantly for the spirit, they were waiting for Jesus and they had to be told what that would look like. So in verses 10 and 11, the angels say to him, this same Jesus that is gone will come back to you and see it in the same way. I'm going to talk about that in a moment because that's something called the second coming of Jesus. Some, the, the technical Greek phrase is the parousia. I'll tell you about it in a wee minute. But I want to focus for the moment on this moment when Jesus is taken away from them. This powerful and important moment in the church's history that we so often neglect. It's scattered across the Bible. Listen to some of these verses. You don't need to look them up. You'll be able to get them from the tape or from tape. That's an old word from the... Um, whatever it is it's called now. Acts 7. This is when Stephen is being killed. Verse 55 and 56. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened 
and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Listen to this. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he is the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul talking about what God has done, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter or the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I could go on, but I'm not gonna. Here's the thing that, well, there's several things that are important about what those passages all tell us. Firstly, in the moment of the transfiguration, in the moment of the ascension, I beg your pardon, something happens in the nature of God which is so important for you to understand. If the incarnation was God becoming flesh, in the moment of ascension, the humanity of Jesus is absorbed into the nature of God in a powerful way. And it will never go away. Jesus still has a body. He is still someone. And that body still has scars. God has redeemed the very scars and pains of our lives. He's taken the marks that signify weakness and absorbed them into the second person of the Trinity. The incarnation reminds us that God became flesh. The ascension reminds us that God remains somehow enrobed in Jesus Christ. That changes how you see yourself. As a human being, somehow God is marked by your humanity just as he marked our humanity with his presence. That is so important. You're changed. Your self-understanding is changed. Your value is changed. Your worth is changed. Your dignity is changed because the Son of God still is enrobed in flesh and will always be enrobed in flesh. In fact, the flesh that he's now enrobed in is a new resurrection body. He's the only one ever to have one, which is why the Bible describes him as the first Adam, as the one that is ascended from the dead, the one in whose resurrection, our resurrection lies secure. The ascension matters because if Jesus 
was ascended to God on high, then we too will one day ascend and be in God's presence forever. Because he has gone, we will go. Because he has broken the power of death, we will break the power of death. Because he has gone through all that he went through, we can go through anything that we face because our Savior is ascended. Don't get excited about that. Don't get excited about that because you wouldn't want people to think you were taking it so seriously that it made you smile. You see, the second thing about this, which is remarkable, is when Jesus Christ died, and follow me for a moment, all those verses that I read to you had one thing in common. They all talked about God, Jesus being at the right hand of God. Yes? When Jesus died, according to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, We are told that after he died, he descended to the depths of the earth. He descended into a world darker and more sinister than anything that you and I can imagine or think. And in that descending, he broke the chains of death and sin. He went as far down as he could go. And he has been lifted up as high as is possible. He's not somewhere in between. When you read what it means or you think about what it means for him to be seated at the right hand of God the Father on high, it means that all authority is given to him. There's nothing stronger. There's no one more powerful. There's no presence. There's no spiritual force. There's no sin. There's no demonic influence. There's no controlling society. There's no political power. There's no regime. There's no dictator. There's no government. There's no church. There's no theology. There's nothing as high as him. And because he descended and ascended, in his descending, our sin is dealt with. In his ascending, our hope is secured. He has gone as high as he can, and he remains there forever. And because he is as high as he can be, you will reign with him if you are a Christian. In this ascended state, what does he do? Have you ever thought, what is Jesus now doing? The Bible tells us a number of things about what he's now doing. He now lives to make intercession for us. (laughs) Jesus Christ, the man, stands in the presence of the Godhead. And his very presence is a symbol that my humanity will be utterly transformed. He ever lives to make intercession for me. He's always there. The Father always sees him. And when he sees him, he thinks of me and of you as a child of God. Hallelujah. He is reminded, not because he's forgotten, but because it's an eternal statement. This is where my people belong. Beside me, with me, reigning with me. The Bible gives us a picture of him having absolute power, absolute sovereignty, absolute wisdom, absolute strength. And we are centered on this Jesus. That's why I read Revelation 5 during our communion time this morning. I don't know what you're facing. But I've walked with families over the last couple of months here that have faced the worst things possible. And when you do, it's easy to forget that God is there. You find yourself lost in the story, somewhere between his death and his return. And you can forget 
It's natural. It happens to most people. But in these moments, if you're watching online and you're walking through the darkest pathway or you're here this morning and you're walking this road, in those moments, even when everybody else forgets you, Jesus hasn't. He's standing before Almighty God and you're on his mind. And what he has started, he will complete. He'll never abandon us. He'll never walk away from us. He'll never leave us. The God who was incarnated in the flesh has been vindicated before angels. He has been preached to the world and he is still changing the world. To be expectant is to be waiting on his power. It's to be centered on him. And it is, as I said a moment or two ago, to wait on his return. I'm not going to go into a full sermon on the return of Jesus Christ here. We don't have time. But just let the simple promise of Acts 1, verses 10 and 11, give you strength. This same Jesus will return in like manner. The Jesus that healed the sick, the Jesus that embraced the broken, the Jesus that had time for people, that remembered their names, that stood up for the underdog, that forgave sin, that embraced people that society had rejected, that's the one that's coming back. The one that has scars on his hands is the one that's coming back. The one that died and was buried and rose again and ascended is the one that's coming back. And he will come back in physical form. He will come back into time and into history. I'm convinced that these verses tell me very clean, plainly and very clearly that he will return to a place just outside Jerusalem. That he will be as visible in his return, in fact more so. That the world will see him when he returns. And that he is returning for the people that he has promised that he would return for. That gives us hope. Times events, that's for another sermon series. Things that are happening around the world, that's for another sermon series. Some of them can be sensationalized. Here's what the point is here. This Jesus is coming home. He's coming back to take you home to be with him. And where he is, you will be forever. Of course, he is now in heaven. Your eternal destiny is not in heaven. The Bible teaches that when Christ returns, he will establish his kingdom on the earth and you will reign with him forever and ever. There will be no more division. There'll be no more breaks. There'll be no more goodbyes. There'll be no more separation. And get this, the thing that excites me most, you can understand why it excites me. I will be the perfect version of me. <laughs> Many of you are saying, does that mean that you'll preach slightly shorter? We're an expectant church. We don't believe that history just goes round and round and round and round and round. We believe that the world has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And as arrogant as it might sound to you, or you joining us online, we're on the winning side. We know how this story wins, or ends. We know how it ends in every political regime. We know how it ends in every street, and every village, and every continent, and every town. We know how this story ends in every single situation. God wins. That's how this story ends. 
So when the enemy says, I won, he's a liar. When he says, I've stolen your hope, he's a liar. When he takes away your joy and tells you that you'll never get it back, he's a liar. We believe this story ends differently. In a moment in time and history when Christ will break the clouds, the trump of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and we will be caught up together with them and so we will be with the Lord forever. That's how this story ends. And sometimes in the midst of the darkest moments and the hardest situations for a church and for a family, we just have to keep believing it. We don't feel it. We don't kind of feel it washing over us or maybe occasionally we do, but we have to make a choice and that choice is I'm not giving in. I'm not giving in to the culture as a church. I'm not giving in to society as a church. I'm not giving in to the prevailing ideas of what it means to be happy in Europe today. I'm not giving in. We want to be a church that is expectant of the power of the Holy Spirit. A church that is expectant on Jesus, that hangs on his every word, that looks for him, that waits for him, that longs for him. And we want to be a church that recognizes that Christ is returning for a bride. And we want that bride to be complete. The reality of heaven should shape our living now. By the way, it's kind of trendy to talk about heaven being an idea. Where is Jesus now then? I have friends that will tell me, theologian friends that will say to me, Malcolm, you're far too literal about heaven. It's a concept. It's a sixth dimension. Where is Jesus now then? Because he had a body and he went somewhere. Where'd he go? He didn't just disappear. He's still alive. He's still doing something. I don't know where it is. I don't know what it looks like. I can't begin to explain it to you. But I tell you, heaven is real. And it is a reality that breaks into the here and now and gives us hope and life. I can't tell you what it's like, but I can tell you what it's better than. It is so powerful and so beautiful that the streets are compared to being paved with gold. I'm not sure that means that they're paved with gold. I think that means that the thing that you hold as most valuable is as common as concrete. I can tell you that it's a community, it's a place, it's a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a reality where there is no sin, no suffering, no sickness, no death, no tears, no sadness, no mourning, and no devil. I can tell you that it's a community that is governed by love and hope. It doesn't even need a son because the source of life itself is its son. Is that not worth living for? The problem is that many Christians just kind of hope when a die, I'll go to heaven. The call is not to wait until you go to die to go to heaven. The call is to let the reality of all those promises shape the way you live now. So when we fight injustice, we do it in heaven's name. When we stand against wrong treatment, we do it in heaven's name. When I preach the gospel and ask people to become Christians, I'm not asking them to get a ticket to heaven when they die. I'm asking them to become part of an army that will change the earth. I'm asking you to stand up, expectant that God will help you as a teacher, as a doctor, as a mom, as a dad, as a carer, as a friend, as a neighbor, and that through your ordinary actions, like giving somebody a cup of cold water, God could change the world. All across Belfast, 
All across County Down and County Antrim, all across Castlereagh and Lisburn, there are people that need to know that there's something better than what they're experiencing now. We are the people with that message. A message of life and hope and grace. Over the weeks we've been seeing people respond to that. My heart's cry is that we will continue to see that happening. But as we continue to see it happen, as we get crammed in here, wouldn't that be a good problem? Some of you are not sure. You might even have to give up your seat. Do you know what I'm going to do one Sunday morning to bless you? I'm going to have all the seats jiggled up. There'll not even be an aisle. And you'll come in and you'll say, where's my seat? The day's coming when this building isn't going to be big enough. When we're going to have to think about what it looks like to create space for men and women. And it might come quicker than you think. It'll certainly come quicker than I would like. And we're going to have to deal with that. An expectant church makes room for others. It is open to what God wants to do and nothing is going to hold it back. But you know what its strength is? Its strength isn't its pastor. Its strength isn't its denomination. Its strength isn't the way it does services. It's not its worship leader. Its strength is Jesus Christ. He's the one that deserves all the glory. He's the one that deserves all the thanks. He's the one that we look to. And if you're visiting today, looking for a community to be part of that is set on Jesus, we're that community. Unapologetically, we're broken, we're flawed, and we make mistakes. But we are committed to bringing Jesus to every person that we meet and to living for him in the power of his spirit and allowing him to do what he wants. We want him to be the king of our lives, individually, the king of our lives as a church, and the king of all of our plans. It's not very confusing, really. That's why I've asked the band to play the song that we're about to sing, to close our service. Thanks very much for listening. You've been very attentive. I'm really grateful. We're going to... Oh. I'm... You can do that again anytime. <laughs> We're going to, no, no, no. <laughs> I now feel like I'm in a pantomime. Can we stop? <laughs> He's behind you. Now that would be a good sermon on the second coming. <laughs> I'm going to invite, focus. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to sing an old Wesley.